I don't know about you, but my mental health went down the toilet in 2020. Now, I've always been anxious by nature, but since turning 40, which was closely followed by the pandemic, happy birthday to me, I've had to make my mental health more of a priority. And I know I'm not alone. According to the World Health Organization, global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a whopping 25% in the first year of the pandemic. So, um, I don't know, maybe we should talk about it? Hello, friends. My name is Desiree Nielsen, and you are listening to the All Sorts Podcast, where our goal is to make wellness not suck. I started this podcast because I wanted to create a space where you could access evidence-based, positive, and actually useful information about taking care of yourself. A space where you can make choices to help yourself feel better, while also realizing that our health and wellness goes beyond just drinking a green juice to the way our communities are designed, our ability to access culturally and gender-safe healthcare, and even climate change. And yep, we have a podcast on each one of those topics, so be sure to scroll through the archive and give them a listen. But something we haven't covered much yet on the pod is anxiety. And I'm really thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Nicole Lippmann-Barrill, PhD, clinical psychologist, to talk about anxiety through the lens of wellness, because there is some pretty shady advice being doled out on the internet about the role of diet and anxiety in particular, the gut-brain connection, even the microbiome, like you name it. So I wanted to ask Dr. Nicole to set the record straight about some common myths as well as some evidence-based strategies for improving your mental health. So let's dive in. Nicole, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the All Sorts podcast. I have so many questions. (laughs) I have so many things that I want to ask you about, not just because of the experiences I've had in my own life, but just I think that there's so much conversation happening around mental health and anxiety, particularly in the wellness space. And I think that there is a lot of damage being done as we do this. So I'm really excited to like get the real deal, get the science from you and bust some myths. Definitely. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm excited to talk about it. I want to start like at the very beginning, uh, you know, for those in our community who haven't yet followed you on Instagram, which they absolutely should at Feed Your Mental. But, you know, why psychology? Like, how did you get into this arena in the first place? So my dad is a psychologist and I recall like around 12 years old, I would help him at the time sort out his paper notes. And so he would talk to me about like some of the things that he would do, do with people in session. And I just thought that was the coolest, most important job I've ever heard of. So I basically at 13 determined, okay, this is it. I'm going to be a psychologist and this is how I'm going to help people. And I really did not even entertain another option. (laughs) And I'm glad I, I'm really glad I didn't because everything I did moving forward just validated and confirmed that this is really exactly what I wanted to do and what I wanted to dedicate my career towards. So I was very lucky very lucky in that sense that I could take that route because I obviously I had direct guidance on that. So that's what led me into psychology. That's so incredible. I also really love my work and I realize what a privilege that is because not everybody gets to wake up for work every day and be like, man, I love this. Like even the garbage stuff that I don't like, you're like, oh, but it's in service of the stuff that I do. <laughs> like nobody likes an email, nobody likes bookkeeping, but it's in service of like getting to wake up and do the thing you love so much. And I think we should also talk about 
how much time psychology is. Like, do you want to talk a little bit about your education process? Because I think there are, there's a lot of questions around the word therapist or psychologist or counselor and like what those different things mean. Sure. Yeah. So I have a PhD in clinical psychology. So in terms of the what that looks like in America and what that journey is. So you have to do four years of an undergrad. You don't have to do psychology as an undergrad to get into grad school, but that's what I did. I did four years of undergrad as a psychology major and then graduate school, if you're going to get a PhD, is anywhere between five to seven years. So I went into a combined program, a master's and PhD program, and I was there for six years. So I got my my degree in six years, but and then also in America, you have to get a year after you do your, um, after you graduate, you have to do a postdoc. So you have to do the equivalent of about a year of clinical practice work and being supervised. And then you can sit for the licensing exam. And then once you pass the licensing exam, that's the last test you'll ever have to take in your life. (laughs) So all in all, it's four years of undergrad and it took like seven years of grad plus that extra year in order to be in the position that I am now. So it is, you know, it is quite long. And throughout the process, you know, you have to dedicate a lot of time and a lot of effort, but it's always worth it if that's what you want to do. I have so much respect for people who go like all the way into their PhD because me after a five-year professional undergrad, I was like, and I'm done. (laughs) I get it though. I totally get it. And also if you don't need to get your doctorate, don't like, (laughs) but I knew, I knew I wanted it, you know, for specific reasons. I knew I I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So that, and that's, that's why I pursued it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you did. I've really, I've really enjoyed everything that you're sharing, you know, on your platform, because I think there is so much discussion around anxiety and, you know, the, the sort of like wellness approaches to it and even the reality of like what it is. And like, maybe we should talk about that. Like, what is anxiety? Like, what do we actually know about why anxiety happens? And is it just that we're talking about it more or, or is there a really real increase in people who are experiencing anxiety? Sure. That's a really legitimate question. I think it's good to start with a definition because there's two things to discern with with respect to anxiety and just with respect to sort of any emotion. So anxiety is an emotion by definition. And by definition, an emotion also affects our psychological state. It affects our behaviors, right? So it's it's a full it's a full experience for a person. So there's there's temporary anxiety, which can happen in response to things that actually make us nervous. If we're confronting something where we're anticipating something happening, something new for the first time, or if we're uncertain about something, there can be a natural response, a natural ang- anxious sort of response to that, right? That's fine when it's proportional to the context. That's not pathological. When something becomes or starts looking like an anxiety disorder, What's really char- what makes that a disorder is the frequency of how often people experience anxiety, the intensity level of how um, you know the degree of which people experience anxiety, like how how anxious does somebody become in response to something, and also how much does that impair a person's life? Like, is a person still able to go to work? Are they still able to go to school? Like, are their grades slipping? Like, you know, there's there's these things that are indicators as a professional that we would assess in order to determine whether something's an anxiety disorder or just a response to something that's happening in a person's environment, right? So there, that's a really important distinction 
to make for people. And an anxiety disorder is very different, right, than saying that you experience anxiety sometimes, right, in, in proportion to what's going on in your life. So, you know, to sort of like, you know, put it into general terms, if someone has a huge licensing exam that their entire career depends on, it's pretty normal to be anxious for the few weeks leading up to it because it's such a big deal. Whereas if someone is experiencing the kind of anxious thoughts and feelings where just getting up and going to work in the morning or doing like basic work tasks, then that's where we sort of move into this disorder that it's, it's really impacting their lives. Exactly. And if that's sort of more becoming more frequent for that person too, right? Like mm-hmm. that, that's another sign or indication that this is not a typical quote unquote normal like response, right? That the person is experiencing. That makes sense. And is this happening more now? Are we simply talking about it? Are we simply diagnosing it more? Like, I actually think, I don't know. I haven't looked exclusively at the research on this, but I do think it's all of that. Actually, mm-hmm. I do. I do think that there is an increase in anxiety disorders that are that are that are happening. But also, I think people are talking about it more. Whether or not social media has a hand in that, I'm not sure. And I think that some, that some of what I'm starting. This is just me in my own clinical practice, but I do see that people are sort of seeking therapy more now versus I think that it's just, it's just an option that people sort of know now is a little bit more available and also something that they should, they can seek out when there is more anxiety present. So I do think it's a, it's, it's, a com- it's all of those things that are potentially happening and especially in certain like populations. So like with teenage girls, there is a rise for in, in anxiety disorders and in depressive disorders. So, and that, is, that is something that we have seen kind of consistently. So that's also very, that's also very real. Also, just to mention this for people, I didn't say this in the beginning in terms of defining anxiety, but the other part about anxiety that's, I think is important to just um, make note of is that it's also comes with physiological responses for people. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people beyond just having like the emotional experience of feeling anxious or nervous comes with a host of different physical symptoms. So for, for a lot of people that's like heart racing, sometimes their breathing becomes labored. They're uh, digestive issues can, can, you know, people a lot of times feel it in their gut and feel it in their stomach that they're nervous and that they're anxious. Um, this can affect other things like appetite or sleep. So it's also like a very much a physical experience for people as it can, as it is like an emotional experience for people. And I think that's a really important distinction to make too. And I'm so obviously as a digestive health dietitian, like I'm super fascinated by this and this idea of the gut brain connection. Like I remember reading, you know, Dr. Gershon's second brain, like way, way back in the day. And I was like, like, what is going on here? And with all of the people that we care for with irritable bowel syndrome, myself included, there is, you know, a significantly higher risk in this population that they are dealing with anxiety And, you know, so both being super excited about this and interested and fascinated by this, but, and also in some respects, like absolutely horrified by like what I'm seeing around people talking about the gut brain connection, like, oh, you know, the gut and the brain are connected. And so if your gut health is good, like your mental health problems will go away. And, you know, particularly in my world, it's like, oh, avoid gluten and dairy, (laughs) eliminate everything, take a probiotic, and then magically you'll be fine. Like, 
what do we actually know? Like, what is the gut-brain connection? And like, how much is sort of theory at this point versus like, oh, we know that, you know, for example, people with irritable bowel syndrome have, you know, higher incidence of depression and anxiety than people without. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So the gut-brain connection really just refers to this relationship that exists between the gut and the brain being able to communicate with each other through various kinds of ways. And the I think where gut health really be, actually is relevant with mental health is in digestive disorders because this is very real. It's also, you know, you you can you it's recommended to do both, right? With respect to if you do have a digestive disorder working on actually your nutrition and aspects of that, as well as getting anxiety treatment, because that also will significantly help gut issues, right? So so it is in tandem. So this is where I think this really actually becomes relevant as part of the discussion. In people who do not have digestive issues, we have no evidence, right, that tells us that if you optimize your gut health from a nutritional perspective, that that really does anything to, again, treat an anxiety disorder. That's right. If we're talking about treating a disorder, that's very different than saying I'm less anxious now, because again, I was, I was just experiencing like a temporary state of anxiety. Right. But we really have zero evidence, really good evidence. I would say that suggests that if you do something exclusively with your nutrition and diet, that that has a direct impact on anxiety symptoms. I want to reiterate that. I want to take a pause because as much as I, as a dietitian, would love to be able to say, oh yeah, you know, like that kale salt is going to fix you up good. <laughs> if someone without, in the absence of digestive health concerns, also has anxiety, we don't have any good evidence to say, eat this type of dietary pattern or focus on these nutrients, for example, like protein or carbs. So we don't actually have any good evidence to say that you should do that. No. And to go a little bit deeper into that in terms of detail, these, like the research that exists with respect to looking at this relationship between diet and mental health, really the emphasis so far has been on depression. There's just more studies that are, that have been published looking at the relationship between diet and depression. The existing literature on diet and anxiety is even worse, I would argue, because there's yet to be a study that has that has included a clinical population. So clinical population meaning people with anxiety disorders. The the literature that does exist are health in healthy populations. So these are people who maybe slightly report some elevated anxiety on a self-report questionnaire that the researchers are using to assess anxiety, but in no way does that reflect a person who has an anxiety disorder, right? So that's why I I emphasize that there's no good literature, there's no good research, because we have nothing in the space of seeing changing diet alone, and we're in a clinical anxious population. Is there any relationship there? There's nothing that we have that suggests that. Yeah. And I think that's so important too, because I think one of, particularly with the way that science is communicated around this stuff on the internet, but also when we're not in the science, you know, and myself included, you know, as a dietitian and as someone who has been in digestive health for over a decade, 
Like when I read those studies, like that's my zone. Like I've, I've been reading them for 10 years. And when one study comes out, I know where it, it like lands in the context of the other stuff that's come before it. I don't have that same ability in anxiety or depression. You know, like I can read the study and I can understand it, but to me, it's just one study. And I, and I find it so easy for people to cherry pick this research and be like, oh, here's this one thing that showed, for example, the microbiome is different. And you're like, okay, we have this observation, but we don't have science to say, what the heck does that mean? Or how do we clinically change practice based on that. And I think that's what many people sort of misunderstand. Like that's the gap. Exactly. That's exactly, that's exactly it. It's yeah, there's interesting observations. There's interesting relationships maybe, but we don't have an idea of the direction of the relationship. We don't have an idea about, does this mean we should be treating anybody differently who has anxiety? Like we absolutely have no understanding of that. And I don't think we will for probably a while, but that, yeah, I think that really needs to be emphasized for people is that just because a study indicates that there is some sort of difference in, in microbiome bacteria, let's say like the population that exists, just because there's a difference between someone with clinical depression versus someone without doesn't mean right? Automatically that we now should be changing the uh, person's depressed person's microbiome to fit a healthy person. Also for the reason, and you know this more than I do, your microbiome responds pretty rapidly to dietary changes. And it's also responsive to lots of other things outside of diet. So if we're, if we're using diet, you know, this is where this doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, if we're using diet to change your microbiome and you're not doing that in a consistent way, and you're also you don't change other aspects of your lifestyle. How are we confidently saying that temporarily changing your microbiome is going to lead to long lasting symptom reduction, right? That doesn't make any sense either based on what we know. And one of the biggest, you know, like definitely a personal pet peeve of mine, you know, vis-a-vis all of the microbiome testing that's currently out there as well, because getting the testing is like, oh, cool interesting, unique. But the next layer of that value add that most of those services provide is here's what you do based on your test results. And people would be absolutely shocked to know there's almost no evidence to back that up, particularly because whereas the microbiome is concerned, there's so much redundancy, like metabolic redundancy in the microbiome. And so Mm. we can say, you have these bacteria, not these bacteria, but both those sets of bacteria metabolically may perform the same function. So if you're like, oh, well, since you don't have them here, change your diet to get them. But you're like, no, my bacteria already does the same thing that those do. Like there's so much where like we sort of like flash ahead with the science and we try and turn observations into like clinical practice. And it's just, it's, we're so not there. <laughs> we're so not there yet. Yeah. Well, that's, that's so interesting that you said that. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't know that about with respect to like bacteria, the other, the other new, I don't know if you saw this, but Alan Flanagan shared this. I'm a part of his like Alinea nutrition group. And he shared a recent study about how even the gut microbiome testing is not reflective of all that's in the gut, right? This is probably more reflective of a, a very small portion of our intestines. Right. And so we can't use the test as a representative of, of 
entire flora, right, that exists in our microbiome. So there's so many limitations, there's so many gaps. And that's why I think we can't really say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not nearly as provocative as eat this raw carrot salad to fix your microbiome, right? Like this, this is why we're just not going viral with this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. We're not selling, I don't know, a supplement Mm -hmm. (laughs) to tell people like, yeah, if you take this, like everything will be fine. Can we talk, you know, further to this gut brain connection? Because this is one of the things, and actually I have to admit that I also use it because I just think it's such a delightful nugget of information, but I hope I use it for good and not for like evil or misinformation. Can we talk about gut derived serotonin? Because many of us have heard at this point, you know, like 95% of the serotonin in your body is not in your brain, it's in your gut. And I usually tell people after that, that serotonin is really important for motility. It's how our gut moves. But can we talk about, so this gut-derived serotonin, is this going to like, is this the magic key that unlocks our mental health forever or? Yeah, I'm going to go with or. So, (laughs) (laughs) so. Yes. So like you see, like you mentioned, gut derived serotonin is different from brain derived serotonin for a number, for, for, for a few reasons. So serotonin is just a neurotransmitter. A neurotransmitter is simply just a chemical messenger that communicates to other cells like, Hey, do this or Hey, don't do this. Right. So, and, and the neurotransmitters that are produced function differently depending on where they are produced and where they stay in your body. So neurotransmitters, the same neurotransmitters that are that are produced in our brain are also produced in our gut. Beyond just serotonin, there's dopamine, there's GABA, there's acetylcholine, there's others. And depending on, again, depending on where they are derived from, they have different functions. So gut serotonin and gut neurotransmitters do not cross into the blood-brain barrier and get into our brain. So, which means that they will stay in circulation or they will stay in the gut and they will be used for things like peristalsis and other kinds of digestive functions. Brain-derived neurotransmitters are produced there and they stay in the brain. And those are the neurotransmitters that are responsible, not just for mood, but for behavior, for movement, for learning, for appetite, sleep. Those are the ones that will control and influence those types of functions. So the stuff that's in our gut does stay in our gut and doesn't just like meander on up to, if only because <laughs> when I'm yeah. thinking, I'm th- I always bring it back to IBS because that's just like so strongly in my wheelhouse, but there is some evidence that in particularly diarrhea predominant IBS, there might be an excess of circulating serotonin. Wouldn't it be so helpful if it just like went up there and just, you know, it would help you <laughs> on Unfortunately, the things that make sense to us logically are often not how they actually work in the science. And I think that's a big, that is a big challenge that if stuff makes sense to us, if it feels logical to us, we have a tendency to believe it's true. Yeah. But the science isn't always logical to us, is it? No, not. And you not our brains either. I mean, like it's the most complex organ, right? And so it it would be almost silly to think like A plus B equals C when with respect to like thinking about how our brains work. I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. I think also the other context that makes this believable is like when, when you're struggling, right? When you are struggling with mental health issues or you're struggling with digestive issues or a combination of something, and then you 
see this information online as it's presented as A plus B equals C, and there's certainty that it's packaged with, with, and there's a solution that it's packaged with, it's unbelievably convincing for us to look at that and buy into that because of the state that we're in and because of how it's packaged to us. And that's no fault of anybody's. It's no fault of anybody's to get sucked into that whole process. Yeah. I, on the nutrition side, so often I tell people, you know, particularly people who are struggling around nutrition and feeling confused and maybe a little fearful because there's a lot of fear mongering that happens because again, that's very compelling. Like if this is the person that's saving me from the thing I did all my life that's apparently killing me, like I'm going to continue to tune in. And sometimes the strongest piece of advice I can give is to unfollow, to actually take that gut check. Anyone who makes you fear feel fearful. Anyone who gives you that little rush of, oh, this is like groundbreaking information or like, how was I doing this all? Just unfollow them because the truth, the measured, sustainable truth is often, is almost always never, like it's not going to elicit that response in you. It's not. Yeah. It's, it's very true. I think, I think that would do a lot of good for people to, once they know that a certain person is putting out inaccurate information to actually just unfollow and to just cut, cut those ties real quick. Totally. It's so hard to do. It feels so addictive to keep scrolling, doom scrolling. (laughs) I want to talk about, because there is so much online about food and anxiety, and also you have nutrition training in your background as well. I wanted to, because I was like, I was scanning through your Instagram ahead of this talk and, you know, you had a post where you talked about things you thought were true and that you now realized they weren't true. So like how much in your own sort of journey around food and nutrition and your clinical psychology practice, like how much have you had to unlearn with respect to, oh, I thought this was actually a fact and it's not. Yeah. So I have nutrition education, but I do not have a legitimate nutrition education. So I got a certification called the nutritional therapy practitioner certification. And I got that through the nutritional therapy association. And that was in 2018 that I did that. And at the time I didn't know it, but I was now understand that I was sort of consuming a lot of wellness Um, content like about food, you know, demonizing seed oils, like the typical kind of stuff that we still see circulating the internet. And I was reinforced a lot of those messages. So that was like one of those things that I was taught that there's like inflammatory oils and those are seed oils and you shouldn't be cooking with those. And, you know, there's, there was a lot of that information that was taught to me and it wasn't until COVID happened because at the time I, first of all, I was three months pregnant, but whatever we, I was working at a major hospital here in New York and we were, I was working at an outpatient clinic and it was a unique clinic in the sense that we had served the community, but we also served a lot of hospital employees. So I actually had some of my patients were residents in the hospital and I live in New York. So this was March and April of 2020 and it was awful. And so I was hearing the accounts that my patients were telling me with respect to what they were, they were treating in terms of COVID. 
and all of their horror stories. And that was being juxtaposed with people that I was following online who were now putting out information like conspiracy information about COVID. And these were people that I was following for nutrition and health information. And so what happened was I said, okay, if they're talking about that in this way, what else are they talking about that has to be false? So I started doing a little bit of digging and was questioning things. And it wasn't until several months later, I was contacted by the the, um, Center for Nutritional Psychology, and they had contracted me to actually start writing one of their courses. So I started, I started writing and in the process of writing, all I was doing was reading research, all I was doing for hours and hours. And I was reading the research on the diet mental health relationship. And I was so unimpressed because again, it was juxtaposed with the claims that I was reading online from people again, that I was getting my health information from. And I realized that something doesn't add up. So That's when I really learned to unlearn a lot of that information and started following people who had higher level education in the field of nutrition. And I continued reading and now I have really smart friends that I consult with. So it took it that, that all of that took me to the place where I was like, there's nothing adds up here. And I'm going to now start putting content and information online about the accuracy around this relationship because somebody needs to. Well, and I'm so glad that you do. And I think this is so important for people to hear because I have been a dietitian for, gosh, 15 years now. And I have to admit that also I, 15 years ago, was, you know, the seed oil girl and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, based on the mechanistic studies we had 15 years ago, I'm like, oh, there's the potential for this. And in the last 15 years, like it's been annihilated in the literature. Like we see that when you include seed oils in your diet, inflammation tends to go down, not up. And so I myself have had these things where I thought one thing and then I educated myself, the science evolved and I realized, wow, okay, I'm wrong. And so I think it's so important for people to hear that someone with a PhD, highly educated, highly intelligent, can also receive this information and take it in and be like, oh, this is right even when it's not, because I think we're still, I mean, I can't believe the seed oil thing has come back again in all honesty. So can we, can we maybe Mm. just like officially say seed oils? I commonly see people telling us to avoid seed oils for anxiety. Can we say there's any research to support that? None. None. Absolutely zero. Zero. Perfect. I love Mm. that. Yeah. Let's talk about carbs then. This is another really common one, whereas I see all sort of like extremes. So one, the sort of measured, let's just have a balanced plate. So let's eat our carbohydrate. I mean, which as a dietitian, that's what we're always telling people to do anyways. Let's eat our carbohydrates. Let's have some protein. Let's have some healthy fats. Let's have some fiber. That that is important, that blood sugars, balanced blood sugars are important for anxiety. All the way to the spectrum of go keto carbs make you anxious. Can we, let's explore that particular milieu. (laughs) Yes. So (laughs) there is no good research. So here's the thing with anxiety and and food. Let's also, we've sort of made this explicit, but to make this explicit again, is there are individual differences here, right? So for some individuals, potentially having 
too many carbs at once could elevate their blood sugar to the extent where they actually start experiencing physiological symptoms that mimic this feeling of anxiety, nervousness, shakiness. That can be very valid. Same thing can happen for individuals with coffee, right? Every, some people respond very negatively to intaking coffee. And so if you're an individual who has these kinds of experiences with food, there doesn't have to be a pathology, but you, you can modify that just by modifying your diet, not having, don't have coffee, right? Or have less coffee or have, so, or pairing your food, right? With fat or something like that. So on an individual level, there are these potential differences, right? But with respect to the general population, there is nothing that suggests that eating carbohydrates alone will significantly influence anxiety symptoms. If we're talking about that from a clinical place, there's nothing to suggest that. If we're talking about that from a potential like temporary kind of place, maybe, but the, but the evidence is just not solid. It's not consistent like whatsoever. So again, like there's individual differences, but from a general population in terms of what the literature is currently showing, there, there doesn't seem to be any sort of significant relationship between consuming carbs and that alone increasing disordered like anxiety symptoms. Thank you so much for that. I think also probably important to say at this point, just to reiterate what you already mentioned, is that something cannot, can be not right for you. But that doesn't mean that it has this effect on everyone, nor that we have science. We might have science to say the opposite, but it still might not be right for you. And the way that the analogy I use for this is one of peanut allergies. Peanuts are an incredibly nutritious food. They're high in protein. They've got fiber. They've got minerals. The science supports they are an incredibly nutritious food. Some people have a deadly anaphylactic reaction to peanuts. So for them, peanuts are not great for them. But for that person to then go out into the internet and say, peanuts are deadly, peanuts are toxic, peanuts are inflammatory, would be incorrect. Because I think that's a very subtle thing. And I see that on the internet a lot is that this is what I did to feel better. Therefore, this is the truth. This works for 100% of people. If the science doesn't say it, it's because they, quote unquote, don't want you to know about it. And so there is a very specific about how does my body, how does my mind feel when I engage in these practices versus what does the evidence say is good or not good for everybody? Yes. And that's such an important distinction. To piggyback off the last part that you just said is, well, how do I say this? I was going to say like wellness the wellness industry values anecdotes very much. It's like the opposite. Like, they are, you know, the hierarchy in science, that's on the bottom. <laughs> but it's very much the opposite with respect to the wellness industry. They value anecdotes. And it makes sense because if it works really well for someone, they can market that, right? And they'll use that as evidence to support whatever their claims are or whatever their treatments are. And that's also something that was emphasized in the certification that I got is like, you have a story to tell. It's important. It's like, they really emphasize that you are special and you went through this health thing and food healed you. And now you're this different person. And now you have this beautiful story to tell so that you can help millions of people. It is, it's quite smart 
marketing wise, it is quite, it's quite intelligent. It's not, it's not dumb, but it's just inaccurate. It's just inaccurate. And this is probably a good point to dive into that whole wellness thing a little more because depending on whose content you're consuming, whose sort of like sphere of influence you've fallen into, I've talked to so many people, you know, in my own practice who feel a sense of shame that they continue to have whatever issue they have going on for them. And they believe that it's, well, it's just because maybe I didn't exercise enough or maybe I didn't eat the right foods enough. There was this idea that if you have to take a medication for something or if somehow this gluten-free, dairy-free, you know, low-carb diet didn't cure your anxiety, that somehow you failed. And it's this bizarre sleight of hand that the people we go to for this information, we somehow don't blame those people when their bad information didn't work for us, we, we blame ourselves. Like how, how does that work? It's such a, it's really harmful. It's really harmful. Also inaccurate. This is just their, I, this is how I see it. This is my opinion, but I think it's their way of not taking accountability. It's very easy to just blame the person for not doing it quote unquote the right way or not following it the way that this person like explained it it's very easy for someone to say that it's a lot harder to have a conversation and be like, I don't know why that didn't work for you. I wonder why. And then to think about and challenge their own assumptions about things. That's not what's happening also because they don't have the qualifications likely to do that. And also they're probably just trying to make money and they're, you know, being myopic about that. So I really do think that that's a tactic that preserves their standing, you know, preserves their claims, preserves their position so that they can just continue to sort of push that, same narrative, but it's extraordinarily harmful for people. Yeah. And what would you say to those people who, you know, maybe they've come into your office now because they've tried all of these other things and they're like, they feel some sense of shame or guilt for not being able to quote unquote fix themselves. So if, if, if anyone is experiencing that, to really bring in a lot of self-compassion into this, because it is truly not your fault. Whatever you are going through has complexity to it, right? If you're going through any sort of health issue, whether that's physical or mental health wise, there's typically nothing simple about that. And it's usually a multifaceted, multi-complicated problem, right? That will also then require different explorations of treatments, right? To, to think about. So it's bringing in some level of self-compassion and, and recognizing that you are not at fault for anything and that you are doing the best that you can. And it's not about, you know, necessarily following a plus B equals C. Right. So I think, I think a lot of the antidote is just trying to bring in a level of self-compassion and just recognition that nothing is your fault with respect to this. You are trying the best that you can. And now we just need to pivot and sort of find a new, a new avenue. And when it comes to those new avenues, obviously therapy is a huge piece of this puzzle. And can you explain the role of therapy in managing and treating anxiety? Because I think for some people, I assume that just like people don't really understand what it's like to sit down in front of a dietitian and don't understand how much we can help or what that process looks like. And so they just don't do it. I feel like maybe people who haven't uh, you know, been exposed to therapy or have sought therapy in the past, they might be like, I don't know what that's 
about and I don't know maybe if it's right for me or what's going to happen. No, I appreciate you asking that question because I do think therapy has this like I don't know, enigma to it. Like it's kind of mysterious. Um, so I will, I can talk about this from, from what I do and how I am trained. So I'm, I'm, I'm trained in cognitive behavior therapy, so I can speak about that through that, that specific modality. But basically if you're going to see a counselor, if you're going to see a psychologist, if what will happen is your first session that you will have with someone is called um, a psychological intake or a psychological assessment. That is usually it's about an hour in length. And this is where I, the clinician, I'm asking you a bunch of questions and by trying to get a sense of like your history with whatever the presenting problem is, and also get a sense of currently what's going on for you. We get family history. So there's a lot of pieces of information that come into that process. And as the clinician, what we're doing is trying to assess not just like what current symptoms are going on, but also how does this exist in the context, the larger context of a person's life. And basically we're trying to just gain clinical information, right. And come up with sort of a conceptualization around like what's happening for, for this person. So you may receive a diagnosis or you may not receive a diagnosis, but if someone, let's say has an anxiety disorder, there's several different kinds of anxiety disorders, of course, but let's say if someone does have an anxiety disorder from a cognitive behavioral therapy perspective. A lot of what I use in terms of treating an anxiety disorder is called exposure therapy. It's a very active, more behavioral form of therapy, but it's found to be extremely effective for anxiety disorders. This can also, this can include like social anxiety disorder, panic disorder. If people have like specific phobias, this can also include OCD and other sort of like OCD-like disorders, like compulsive disorders. So from that modality and that perspective, behavioral, cognitive and behavioral therapy in general has been shown to be very effective for treating anxiety disorders. So that's also something to potentially look into if people are questioning, like, cause there's all different kinds of therapists and there's all different kinds of therapists who are trained in different modalities. And I would recommend behavioral therapy or CBT for people who are struggling with anxiety so hopefully that, that can help a little bit like demystify like the first step and the first process of coming into therapy. You know, for the person who is exploring therapy, what do we have in terms of evidence for perhaps other lifestyle things? Like obviously just generally try and do your best to be healthy, like eat well, sleep well, those kind of things. But do we have data for perhaps, you know, physical activity or stress reduction, meditation, mindfulness as a complement to your therapy or your medication, whatever else is go- you're leaning on? Certainly. Yeah. I think this also connects to like in the practice of psychology, when I'm working with someone, it's, it is quote unquote, like holistic in that respect, right? It's, it's, it's acts, it's like getting a person to change sometimes multiple domains of their life. So with respect to the current literature, we definitely know that exercise is extraordinarily beneficial for our mental health, even more so for depression. There's actually really, really good evidence with respect to physical activity and increasing your physical activity and that being able to actually treat some like mild to moderate symptoms of depression, actually also helping to like potentially stave off depressive episodes as well. So the research is pretty strong in that, but also it's, it's pretty good for anxiety as well. So I do notice even just from like anecdotally in clinical practice that a lot of people feel like physical exercise helps them release their own feelings of anxiety. So often if that if that's something that they enjoy doing, that is something that I will 
recommend for people if that feels good to them. For some people, it doesn't work, right? So again, here's where the individual differences come into play. Did mention mindfulness and that it can be a very effective strategy for people. That that has some pretty solid evidence um, that does help with decreasing anxiety symptoms on the whole. Some people don't like it though. You know, Mm -hmm. so some people like mindfulness meditation and that like actual the sitting practice, let's say of doing something like that. Some people like more active like meditation. So like for some people that could be like going on a walk and learning how to be mindful and cognizant and observant of what's going on. So the I would I would say that the 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 tool of using mindfulness can be very helpful with anxiety because mindfulness is all about trying to like access the present moment and anxiety. That's extraordinarily difficult, right? To do that. Anxiety wants to pull you out of the present moment. So mindfulness, I think can be a really great tool that's complementary for also treating anxiety. So those are the strongest that I would say, but, uh, but on a whole, the other things that I would also mention are things like basic stress management. Um, doesn't have to be anything fancy, also having a good support system. This, this I think sometimes is very much overlooked that whether that's friends, whether that's family, whether that's you find a good like support therapy group or something, having, having support, having strong support is extraordinarily helpful as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a good place to sort of leave this first part of the conversation because I know so often people just want to, they feel motivated. They're like, what can I do? You know, there are so many times when we deal with chronic disease or chronic mental health conditions that we feel like something is happening to us and that we don't then have the opportunity to actively do something to try and make ourselves feel better. So I think that's so powerful to say that, yes, you know, the medications you need to take, if you need to take them, the therapy, but there are actually things that I can do. Like when I get really stressed, I know that if I go for a walk, I feel better. It's like, okay, do that. Like actively seek out again in your own body, in your own mind, what makes you feel good? What makes you feel better and seek that out. And just to mention this, because I don't know if this sounds obvious, but I'm going to make this obvious, which is if you're, you know, different things will provoke anxiety. And sometimes we have like chronic you know, persistent issues that don't have a very clear solution, right? And that can create a lot of like chronic anxiety, right? And that's not very simple to sort out. But if there's anxiety that's coming from, let's say, avoiding paying your bills or avoidance of like other responsibilities or avoidance of something, usually that that's hand in hand with anxiety, then also an anxiety management technique is actually trying to approach those problems, right? And actually trying to work through those problems and trying to problem solve through those problems too. Like, I know it's something that I feel like we don't like, that's not talked a lot about online. That's more of like a clinician, you know, saying this and that's my perspective, yeah. but that's also very real. Like it's, it's actually thinking about what are the things that are provoking anxiety for people and actually thinking about, can you problem solve through some of that? Because there's nothing like getting rid of anxiety other than getting rid of the problem that's causing you to feel anxious. I think that's so helpful to the idea that, you no, know, if, if there is something, if you can, I, if you can pinpoint, no, this gives me a lot of anxiety. Can you change yeah. the situation? Can you, yeah, actually yeah. remedy the thing that is, is causing this for you versus just like, oh, I'll just keep dealing with it. Exactly. Exactly. Nicole, thank you so much for this conversation. I want to shift into just a few rapid fire questions before we close that I do at the end of every episode. So if you have 20 minutes all to yourself, you're not allowed to be productive either in the home or work sphere. What do you do? Honestly, 
I'm probably sitting in the sun in silence. Beautiful. I love that. (laughs) How can you tell you both have a flourishing career and a child other than, you know what, just some silence and sunlight on my face would be real nice. (laughs) You can see how, how simple that is and how, how much I, I need silence sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Okay. uh, Best book you've read this year. I read this last summer, so I guess it's still it's still relevant. It's called This Too Shall Pass. Mm. I can't remember the name of the author, but it was excellent. Okay, I'll look it up and I'll include it in the show notes. Your go-to quick dinner when you don't really feel like cooking? Probably going to be pasta, but what I do is just to get a little extra nutrients in there, I will blend lentils into a jarred sauce. So I'll make like a plant-based pasta and then I'll add that to it. And that will be like my very low effort. I don't want to cook, but I got to eat something meal. I totally do that too. I'm like, just blend the, yeah, blend the lentils in. It's amazing. Okay. Do you prefer music or podcasts? Music. Yeah. And then one myth that most people believe about mental health. It's hard to narrow <laughs> that down. I, I want to say something like, people often feel very alone in their thinking and they often question, is this normal? Mm. And there's so much that I want to say that's actually normal. So if there's, I don't know how to define that as a myth, but I feel like we often question ourselves and sometimes that are very normal, like healthy responses, even though they're uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean there's any pathology that's there. It just means that you're a complicated person with emotions that are also complicated. I think that is the most perfect way to leave this off. Nicole, thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom with us and helping us to bust so many myths <laughs> around nutrition yes. and wellness and mental health. I feel like we need to have a few more conversations in the future. Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you so much for having me. As a dietitian, it is so important to me that people understand just how complex and multifactorial our health is, and that includes our mental health. For example, people with early life trauma are far more likely to develop irritable bowel syndrome later in life, or the fact that race impacts the care you receive as well as your health outcomes. While nutrition can do a lot of good, it's not a 100% solution for all things, and not everybody has equal and fair access to the kind of wellness practices that so many of us take for granted. You know, sometimes what you need is sleep or CBT. So I hope this episode serves as a reminder to treat yourself with a little bit of grace in your journey. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the All Sorts Podcast, which is produced by myself and edited by Brian McCalman. We are grateful to live and work on the unceded and ancestral territory of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Until next week, friends, be well. Be well.